Hey class, it's me, Dr. G, with a special bonus episode for you today. The TSOB team has mostly taken off for the summer. However, one thing we're still working very hard on is our second ever TSOB live show, which is happening this year on Zoom next Wednesday, July 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Last year's conversation was so amazing, and it really was the foundation for what became the podcast that you're listening to so far. Our guests in that inaugural group included some faves you've heard from before, like Dr. Tanya Bass, Jennifer Driver, and Dominique Morgan. But it also included two other powerhouses, Aaron Lang and Walter DeShields. Take a listen when you get a chance. And when you're ready, head on over to the events tab on our website to purchase your ticket for next week's show. We'd love to have you join us, and we can't wait for it when you do. Take care. Welcome to TSOB with Dr. G, a podcast featuring intellectual table talk about race and sexuality. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, a sexuality educator, writer, and researcher. Join me as I talk with the most brilliant minds in human sexuality, applying a professional Black lens to discussions about sexiness, health, and healing in the new millennium. It's TSOB, the sex ed of Black folk. Let's get to the get down, shall we? Okay, so why don't we just go in? Go ahead. Are we all ready? We look good. Everybody looks amazing. Um, Good evening, everyone. Who is on the call? So excited to see the numbers. I can't see your faces, but I'm so excited that you all are here and that you um, willed yourself to be in this space. My name is Tracy Gilbert. I go by the pronouns she, her, and Tembi, and I welcome you to the first of what I hope will be an amazing just evolution of conversation um, around Black folks, Black sexuality, and sex ed. Um, I am a sex educator. I've been one for about 10 years now. I'm the founder and owner of Tembi Anaya, which is a consulting firm that provides multicultural developmental sex ed for under-resourced communities, especially those of uh, African diaspora, African-American experience. And so um, I'm extremely humbled, extremely excited to be with you all this evening, as well as with this panel of just mind-blowing people that um, I look forward to sharing with you all tonight. Let me real quickly kind of share a little bit of information about why I decided to do this event. Um, I know in the room we've got folks who um, are just kind of like fans and they want to be supportive. And I know we also have folks who are sex educators who are listening to us. Um, And one of the things that folks know is that our field, um, when it comes to um, some of the mainstream ideas of what is normal and what is acceptable in our in our field, they tend to come from white folks. They tend to be centered on white folks as if they're not non-white folks doing this work or and that they didn't exist. And so for me, I've always been very, um, it's always mattered to me, uh, my experience coming up. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the Midwest. Um, a black girl, I call them, the urban black girl is what I call my, my little brand. And, and, and I, that's a very unique experience that doesn't often get highlighted Um, and so I know there are other small 
level E, small letter E experiences that often don't get highlighted among Black folks as well in this field. And so I wanted to invite some folks who could share some light on that. Um, what I anticipate is that this is going to be an impactful conversation. I anticipate that we are going to dig through some things and come up with some things. And I anticipate every single person who listens to this is going to leave with some ahas. And if you don't, then hey, that's not my fault because I don't know how you couldn't have possibly gotten something amazing from the folks who are going to be on this panel. It's not even just about me. It's just the folks who are here this evening. Um, so speaking of the panel, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them. And I am going to, as much as try to, because there's so, there's so much to them. They're like so super amazing. I'm going to try to keep their bios short, but Hopefully you'll just listen to the, uh, to all of them and just see why I, I think they should be here. Um, I'm gonna start actually to my immediate left on my screen. So that's Jennifer Driver up in the top, my top left-hand corner. Uh, Jennifer Driver is an award-winning reproductive health rights and justice policy and advocacy leader. Um, she currently serves as the Vice President of Policy and Strategic Partnerships with SECUS, Sex Ed for Social Change. She provides leadership to drive the organization's federal and state policy and advocacy efforts and to build cross-movement and intersectional strategic partnerships and collaborations that advance sexual and reproductive freedom for all at the intersection of queer liberation, racial justice, and reproductive justice. Prior to joining the team at SECUS, Jennifer served as the manager of training and education for Welcoming America, where her work focused on the intersection of immigration, racism, education, health, and policy. Her previous experience has also included a whole bunch of different organizations, basically. Power to Decide, which was um, the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy. Uh, GCAT, the Georgia campaign for adolescent power and potential. Um, basically utilizing public health and intersectional frameworks, Jennifer focuses much of her work on advocating for the health and well-being of young people, paying particular attention to youth of color, immigrants, youth in care, and LGBT communities as she shapes and advances policy, public policy efforts. So that is Jennifer, and obviously you see why she is here and why she needs to be listened to. <laughs> uh, I next want to go, I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to kind of go in a little clockwork here. So uh, the next person would be Tanya Bass, um, who is also known as the Southern Sexologist out of North Carolina. Tanya M. Bass is a national award-winning sexuality educator and a subject matter expert in health equity and sexual health. She is the founder of the North Carolina Sexual Health Conference, which draws sexual health professionals from around the state to share best practices in sexual health across the lifespan. Tanya is the lead instructor for human sexuality at North Carolina Central University, hey, HBCUs, in the Department of Public Health Education. Tanya is a TEDx and keynote speaker, highly requested trainer and facilitator, and much of her work has been in collaboration with community-based organizations, churches, academic institutions, and state and national conferences. She is an association of sexuality educators, counselors, and therapists, certified sexuality educator, and a certified health education specialist. She serves on the editorial board for the American Journal of Sexuality Education and is completing her doctorate of education at the Center for Human Sexuality Studies at Widener University. So now y'all know why I invited Tanya to be here. <laughs> now, 
we go down um, to the bottom left and I uplift Dominique Morgan, an activist, change maker and revolutionary. Dominique Morgan is an, a, another award-winning artist, activist and TEDx speaker. As the executive director of Black and Pink, the largest prison abolitionist organization in the United States, they work daily to dismantle the systems that perpetuate violence on LGBTQ slash GNC people and individuals living with HIV and AIDS. Partnering their lived experience of incarceration as a youth, which included 18 months in solitary confinement, with a decade of change-making artistry, advocacy, and background in public health, they continue to work in spaces of sex ed, radical self-care, and youth development with intentions of dismantling the prison industrial complex and its impacts on our community. Dominique is an NAACP Freedom Fighter Award recipient, a 2020 10 Outstanding Young Omaha recipient, did I pronounce that right, Omaha? <laughs> and a National Juvenile Justice Network 2019-2020 Fellow. They are currently completing their capstone project in the Georgetown University system-involved LGBTQ youth scholar program. And they are hands down the only reason that I got cute to be with y'all today because I was not about to get upstaged on my own stage. So welcome. And y'all know you see why I invited Dominique. <laughs> All right. So to continue the counterclockwise, I'm going to go to my bottom right and uh, welcome Walter DeShields to the forum. Walter DeShields is an artist, performer, educator, and scholar born and raised in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Walter is recognized for his performance career as well as his public health career in Philadelphia. It is the nearly two decades in service, mentorship, and educational leadership which are at the core of his work and values. Walter has been committed to moving the community forward and being responsible for bringing arts and activism to the Philadelphia community. As a collaborator with Public Health Management Corporation, Communities and Schools of Philadelphia, the Free Library of Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia Education Fund, Walter has created sustainable programming and cultivated special relationships that have built the foundation of his arts activism. As a theater and film actor, Walter is co-founder and co-artistic director for Theater in the X, a professional theater company created in 2013 to provide residents of West Philadelphia and the Black community at large the opportunity to see professional quality theater in their own neighborhood for no cost. Um, in addition, Walter works as a lead facilitator and sexual health educator for a theater-based sexual health intervention called Brother Speak with young Black men in Philadelphia. So. That is Walter. <laughs> and last but most definitely not least is Aaron Lang, who is uh, all the things. <laughs> Aaron Lang is a Black Ohio-born consultant, writer, public speaker, and media personality. Ms. Lang's primary focus is in the championing and the social is in championing the social, economic, and political well-being of the transgender community, specifically the needs of Black transgender women. Throughout her career, Lang has been a central figure in the Black social justice movement in the United States. She was a co-founder of the Ohio branch of the Trans Women of Color Collective and a key part of the Black Lives Matter network since its inception. 
currently, Ms. Lang is developing Agabi, am I pronouncing that right? Agabi Consulting, a consulting practice where she will guide individuals and organizations in moving towards a more just world for Black transgender people, which is obviously more needed than all the things. Uh, she aims to use her skills as an organizer, facilitator, and content creator to advise philanthropic entities on how to best shift resources to the Black trans community. So, again, an amazing panel, and I'm so happy that they are with us. And as was mentioned in the comments, yes, this panel is fire, and that is intentional. <laughs> so, um, so this is the panel. I want to just just get y'all ready for them. What I also want to do though is uplift um, the other entity with with uh, for whom we are here tonight, right? So this isn't just us bringing folks together to speak. Um, this is also partially a fundraiser for the um, Operation uh, Obsidian Project, which is a project of Trans in Color, which is an organization out of Atlanta, Georgia. So real briefly, I'll, I'll read their uh, description. Trans in Color is an organization dedicated to the empowerment of trans masculine people of color by giving them a voice and visibility through mental, emotional, and tangible support. The Operation Obsidian Initiative in particular is meant to provide a safe and stable place for disenfranchised trans masculine people of color while prioritizing black and indigenous folks. In addition to housing, Trans in Color will help each individual obtain health insurance and training through the local workforce development program, which will help them in sustaining a successful life. So again, we uplift the work and specifically their organizer, um, T.C. Crawford, who was responsible for putting together that initial uh, fundraiser. Whew. All right. So <laughs> I had to lay it down all that framework before we really got, uh, we really got into it, but I'm glad that, and, and I appreciate you all listening. Um, let me real quick run down what our itinerary is gonna be. We um, have some questions, the panel has some questions that I've, I've given to them. Um, there will be roughly about an hour maybe a little bit more of convo because you know once we get going once brilliant people start going who knows right um we will have about 15 to 20 minutes of q a um afterwards so if you um have questions that are clarifying questions you can ask those immediately like if someone is saying something you didn't quite understand what they were referring to or if you um, had some confusion around something you need them to re reiterate a point you can ask those immediately however any questions that are of topical that are topical in nature or that they you know want to extend things that we're not discussing in the moment i'm going to ask that you hold those until the proper moment and then we'll be able to incorporate those and discuss them fully um all right there is one other thing and we give grace during covid season uh just because of this uh we do have asl interpretation for this evening um however because those interpreters come out of the uh west coast and i am presently on the east coast there was a little bit of a mix-up in terms of the time that was scheduled and so um i actually in fact will probably need to brush off real quick once I get them started talking to deal with some technical pieces. But for those who needed ASL interpret interpretation, it will be available um, very soon. 
Um, as well, closed captioning should be available on your screen. If you go down to the bottom, you should be able to see an option that says closed captioning. And if you select the carrot that is next to it, um, there should be an option that allow you to see the captions therein. Um, mind you, again, technical things being what they are, we are pleading the blood of Jesus that it works properly, but it worked properly earlier. So um, please use that as you need. All right. I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. I think it is. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into this conversation. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do is lead off with an opening question and I'm going to I'm gonna let y'all do rotating chair while I handle things on the phone. So I'll give it to you, Jennifer, that start with answering and then you pass it off and y'all jump in. Um, but the question, the opening question is, what was sex education like for you growing up? And do you believe that being black affected the way you thought about or experienced it? So again, y'all, we're discussing sex education, what it was like for us growing up and whether or not we believe being black affected the way we thought about or experienced it. So I'm going to pass it off to Jennifer. I will be right back. And thank you all for your attention. Sure. So, yeah, I'm happy to start off with this one. I, so I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and actually right outside of Birmingham, I grew up in Hoover, Alabama. So if you know Hoover, you know, in, I don't know, 1990s when I was in school, it was the whitest area um, around. And so it was, my sister and I were the only two black students in the school like in our school system um, until I got to maybe middle school. Um, so I didn't actually see another black face besides my sister who was there with me um, until much later on. Um, sex education was non-existent. We, um, I, you know, you get that class in like fifth grade where they separate you and you get this big ass maxi pad, but they don't actually tell you what to do with that shit. And no one is like, why the fuck is it this thick? Like, why, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, and then you, you come back together and you don't know what anybody else learned. And I don't actually remember what I learned other than that maxi pad. And then I got to high school uh, and I had a coach. I had a, a driver's ed football coach um, teach sex education. Uh, one class, not a, a semester, it was actually one class. Uh, we read a paragraph on HIV uh, and that was it. Um, so that was sex ed. K through 12 uh, in Hoover, Alabama. Um, so I do know, so, so I, I, no, I, I lie a little bit. There's, there was this one lady who came in in eighth grade. I don't actually remember what she talked about, but I remember she was black. I do remember that. What I loved about her is I felt like she was connecting to me. Um, I knew everyone else was different. You know, my my experiences at home were different. My conversations with my family were different. Everybody was spending the night at each other's house. My mom didn't play that. Like I didn't get to go over other people's homes, not the white kids at least. Um, and so like, I knew that I was different. Um, but I also, and I knew that this information that they were sharing at the time didn't really connect with me. Um, so, I mean, I didn't really get sex education and um, yeah, it was, you know, I, I guess we can dig deeper, but like that, that was pretty much all I had. Um, I'm going to toss it to you, Erin. We're just meeting. So hello. Hello, hello, hello. Um, yeah, I, I actually had a, a similar experience 
Um, I, my sexual education in school felt very sporadic growing up. I do remember health class in middle school, like, um, and I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so this is around early, like, not early, but like 2006, anywhere from like 2006 to like 2010. Um, I remember us touching on it in health class and it was very brief. And I remember our gym teacher was actually in high school, our health sex ed teacher, which was super awkward um, just because it was our gym teacher who was like just some guy, some like some like middle-aged guy who didn't necessarily want to be teaching us any more than we wanted to be learning these things from him. Um, and I remember, I remember sex ed really being more about familiarizing myself with diseases, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, than anything else. I would say. I was pretty lucky because I was kind of weird when I was little and I had an older sister who had, you know, the what's happening to my body book. It was this maroon book with like these two white women in a forest on the front. And um, I remember I would like look through her book all the time because it was, it had like naked body parts in it. So I was just curious. Um, and I do remember asking my mother like, <laughs> I was really adamant about getting one for boys, you know, getting that same book. Um, but that also didn't really teach me a whole lot of, you know, as an adult now that I would actually still love to learn. Um, so yeah, I don't know if being black, if I felt any, like if it changed how I interpreted any of the information, but I will say, um, thinking that I was a young gay man, um, a young black gay man, you know, that did inform how I understood everything because I felt like so much of the sexual education I was getting was always tied to danger in some way, shape or form, um, specifically HIV. So yeah, I, I, that's the most I could think of as far as, you know, my blackness related to it, but yeah. I'll pass it to Dominique. Hi, Dominique. Hi, Erin. Um, I was a kid that grew up in the system, so access to comprehensive sex education or any of those conversations weren't weren't a thing, which is which is awkward because I was in very sexualized spaces. So you have all of these young people who are in group homes and facilities, our bodies are changing, and no one's explained to us like what's happening to our bodies. And so we're engaging in, in behaviors, right? Um, and people are still like ignoring us. And then everything sexual was really framed in a negative light. Like, so it was a rule break. You know what I'm saying? Like we were violating um, an operational ordinance. It wasn't, oh, this is how you talk to someone when you like them. This is how um, you ask someone's permission to hold their hand. It, it put everything in this negative light. And I think it positioned me to look at sex as something seedy, as something negative, as something that, especially from at a time presenting as male, but like identifying as queer, something that was just you know, nasty and sneaky. Like I did it when no one else was watching. Um, it wasn't something I talked about. I didn't ask, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't appropriate to ask someone like, how do you become better at XXX, right? So I 
like had I didn't see a condom till I was maybe 18. Um, and I started engaging in sexual activity when I was like 16. Um, and so it's like, you look at that. And then there was an additional layer, the, the system involved youth piece of my time as a, a sex, uh, sexual health educator, um, sadly has, has passed, but I remember all of these folks, you know, well, you need to talk to the parent. And I used to say, well, what happens if they're not living with their parent? Who gets to decide whether this young person has access? And I know inherently white people don't want black folks to be sexually liberated. So these white case managers and social workers and judges are not going to push for this black kid to have access to the information, but in however this child is pregnant or just had a baby, but in however this child still thinks if they dish with Mountain Dew, that that it will prevent them from having another baby. Mm -hmm. So I, I was really gagged by that and and it was like a full circle moment of not only did i not have it the system prevented me from having it and it's still happening um i think in the current i like when i think about what i wish i had or what i wish folks told me i wish it just wasn't so i wish my body wasn't so foreign to me i lived in a body that i did not understand no one gave me the words or the information to process it and 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 going through this whole like transition now it's going back to all of those moments when if I had access to ComSex Ed, how much more information would I have known to be able to lay out my journey, right? And, and I don't deal in regrets at all whatsoever. But those are things that we know are real. When, when you have access to the words and things that describe what you're feeling, you're able to put this puzzle piece together. And so, so yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of erasure of my experience and I think intentional prevention of me getting access. And I think it, I know it caused harm at the end of the day um, for me and for the folks around me um, because it didn't allow me to build healthy relationships. It didn't allow me to understand the boundaries I could place on other people. And I don't know if we're gonna talk about this, but when I was wrapped up in Priya, it didn't, it didn't give me the tools to be able to let people know what they could do, what they couldn't do. I'm just gonna say this, this cares give me a moment, but I'm just going through Lord. Um, but yeah, like it, I didn't have it and they kept it from me intentionally and they're still doing it to young people who are system involved. So shout out to Jennifer for like lifting that up and those standards and being able to get that stuff in youth detention centers because now we have kids, young people who are getting this information and it's because of black sex educators who are saying, you can't just, every kid you're not gonna find in a classroom during fifth period. Some kids you gotta take it to the streets and for some of these babies you have to take it to the juvenile detention center. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dom, can you just clarify real quick what's PREA for folks who may not be aware? PREA is the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and so many people think it's just an adult federal policy, but um, most youth facilities are implementing PREA as well. So it's it gets very scary in that space. Thank you for that. Thank you. I'm I'm I've jumped in because we, we are slowly but surely working out our technical difficulties. Um, I just want to real quick go back to what you were saying, Aaron, about um, seeing sexuality as being something of danger, just because that was so resonant for me because, because of the danger that was quoted to me about teen pregnancy, right? That was the whole thing that you were going to have, if you even thought about sex, you were going to have a baby and your life was going to be, and your life was going to be over, right? Like not, you could still be okay. You could still graduate. You can still have a life. I mean, I'm brilliant, but nobody can, if you have a baby, your life is over, you're dumb. 
and that's the end. And so I just, rem that was just very resonant for me, what you're saying about this idea of our bodies being danger. Uh, they, and I also believe that was very much a racialized message. That's what I was right? thinking when you said that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not gone. <laughs> so I'm gonna volley it's it gone. over. It's still being funded. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and so we're going to get into all of that. I'm going to volley it over to Tanya and then Walt, if you want to close us out uh, on that particular question, Tanya. Yeah, I'm dying to jump in because um, the experience is very similar in terms of what I received in school. And if you, when I first think about it, I'm thinking, yeah, my sex ed was good until I realized what I didn't know. Cause I didn't know what I didn't know until I needed to know it. And I realized I didn't get that. I didn't understand that. Um, same experience. My um, science health and PE teacher was the person. Um, I feel fortunate in some ways that it was an African-American male who provided it, but it was very limited. But what I really speak um, or think about is that a lot of, Outside of the sex ed, I know we're talking about school, but I have to pull it back. I'm from Brooklyn as well as grew up in North Carolina. My sex ed came from my friends and my community. And so I thank God for Miss Bailey, although she never sat us down. Miss um, Bailey is a best friend, my best friend's mom. And they had a relationship that most people in my family felt like was abnormal because you shouldn't be friends or have this friend-like relationship with your child but miss bailey told um i was gonna say her name but miss bailey told my friend enough that my friend actually educated me so we went to go together to get birth control i do think that although i wasn't ready i thought i was ready i think about the person giving me the birth control and the lack of education i received at that facility because for them they never asked me if I was really ready to have sex. They just knew I was there and they didn't want me to be, or I don't want to say they didn't want me to be because that's loaded. But I just think about what you said, um, Tracy, about control around reproduction. I think they just wanted to make sure I was on birth control, not about my feelings about sex, not what I, nobody asked me any questions. They just handed me triphasal three, if y'all remember those pills, and walked me out of um the clinic in that way so a lot of the education just came from my peers and some of it was wrong and it was definitely rooted in a lot of the information and stereotypes around blackness like i think about when i finally developed hips so to speak and you know the gap between your legs and your thighs you know like there was a level of sexualization of people assuming that you are sexually active, even though you're, you're just growing and your body's changing, your body composition is uh, developing, but it was rooted in a sexualization, I feel, on Black bodies. Mm -hmm. And so the education came to me from that perspective of being over-sexualized when I hadn't even started doing anything or having any questions about it. And so you, you might have been racialized if you've ever been called a fast tail girl. <laughs> and it was like you were fast if you had that gap but you were growing up like you can't control the gap between your legs <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Walter how about you I mean y'all basically said it all like <laughs> it's very similar I mean and like sex education was non-existent right now I'm from Philadelphia and um and, and, and I didn't go I went to middle school in my neighborhood and I didn't go to high school in my neighborhood. I went to middle school in South Philly and I went to high school in North Philly. And, you know, that means something, you know, to, to you know, to folks here. Um, and 
but that didn't change. Like nobody had sex education. We had health class. <laughs> like we, we ain't talk about sex though. Like I, I can't tell you. Like we didn't even have. We ain't had a little video about about uh the sperm going to the egg and all that. None of that. <laughs> like I, I might have saw that. You know, as a grown person. Like I knew it existed, I think, but I, I, it ain't happened in school. And so, and, it, and it's still the case, we'll get into some institutional stuff later, but you know, the, the, the district, the, the school folks, they, was, they weren't interested in, in, in approaching that controversy or what they thought was controversy around talking about sex to young folk, right? So we just ain't had that conversation. So I was like, like someone else said, I was educated on the street, you know, and, um, and you know, that ain't the best place to learn about sex, you know, you know, we, talk about my program with young men and um, you know, you talking to other young boys who lying, <laughs> bragging, boasting, who did this with what, you know, all that. And you know, nobody wasn't really keeping it real. So it was about, you know, how much could you get? And that ain't never safe. So I'm, I might've learned about a condom on the street. I mean, I might've learned about putting a condom on in the moment, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's what it was. And uh, you learn that way. And, then, you know, the shit ain't work. You know, I had my first, you know, my first child was born. I was 19. I was technically a teen parent, you know. And um, it's because I was reckless. And I was reckless well before that. So it's like a lot of folks said. But, you know, when I grew up in a city that's, that's mostly black, you know, like who's, who's, who's holding folk accountable for that? For, for you know, this group of young folk to get that education. We know. We know what cities like this are like, right? You know, high poverty, high crime, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. And, you know, folk got other stuff to do. Folks are surviving. And um, how can it not be targeted at black folks? Right? <laughs> not getting that kind of education. So there's a lot of what everybody else said. But, yeah, that's that's my experience with it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you all for, for getting it started. Um, so we're just going to move right along. And, and Dom, I know you said, I don't know if we're going to touch it, but if anything comes up for for us and the conversation just flows, that's what we're going to do. Like I have these questions, but it's not at all limited to what's on the sheet. So, um, so I have questions. I know everybody in this space is not currently a sex educator or has ever been a sex educator. So I have kind of two prongs. The first one's for those who um, do identify as sex educators. What have been your biggest triumphs or biggest struggles being a black person doing this work? And I should tell the attendees, I have, a, I have motives for all of these questions that are rooted in my own experience. So I'm gonna interject those pieces as people talk. <laughs> So again, for those who identify as sex educators, what's been your biggest triumphs and biggest struggles being a black person doing this work? Let me jump in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, like I, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I became a sex educator about five years ago, nearly that. And uh, it kind of blew my mind. I was a high school teacher and a, um, I'm an actor, among other things. And so... Shout out to uh, Tracy and Tanya, and Dr. Watley, um, folk like that. I remember I went to my first conference and it was like 98% white people. <laughs> and you know what I mean? I was like, damn, like, is this the work? <laughs> like this is like, you know, I work with 100% young black men from the hood, you know, young men like myself. And um, 
I, I just felt like, and I felt like this in, in other ways too, in my work, in my daily work, like there was nobody there to mentor me. You know, I'm sure I've said this to Tracy and Tanya, like it, there was no, there was nobody there to mentor me in, in this kind of work. Again, I've been a teacher and I do curriculum and I'm not a commander classroom and all those things, but working uh, with a subject matter in a formal way that was newer to me was complicated. And I wanted to be able to talk to the young folks that I was going to work with, you know, in, you know, the right language and, and, um, you know, give them information that was going to certainly be helpful, that was culturally relevant, et cetera. And so um, I was frustrated for at least the first two years straight every day, like with the people that was tasked with leading me into the work that I was doing. And they know, because I'd be at me as complaining, like, y'all don't understand, you don't get it, you know what I mean? And so I remember going to my first conference and, 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 and that was the room, it was like, this is not for black folk. Like nobody, you know, and then I walk into one of the sessions and then all the black people <laughs> that was there was in the one room. And I started to, I, I, you know, I started to relax a little bit and just listen to folk talk and felt so much more comfortable about this particular journey for me. Um, so I started to feel better about it, but it was definitely a frustration in the beginning. I, you know, other frustrations include like, it's the same thing. So I work in the city that I grew up in and, you know, we don't do the, we don't do this work in public schools. You know, Philly got like 200,000 um, young people in the school district, right? This is a majority minority city. So, you know, the district is basically all black and brown and they still not doing sex education. And we can't, I work, you know, at a, with a public health nonprofit, you know, the, the access to get into those spaces is, difficult, if not impossible. So we still can't do it. And we can't have that conversation. So we, we find workarounds and we do good work, but we still can't get to all the young people that need that kind of conversation. But working with the young folk, as always, is my whole career, sitting in a room with young people is amazing. They're bright and thoughtful and critical thinkers, um, and they want the information, and um, they love having real conversations around it, and that's always a success. I work with some great folk. Uh, who helped this work go. This logo right here, this the Brother Speak logo was designed by my sister, Nana Namako, who's on the team along with a whole bunch of other folks. Um, like they, they make the work really go. So, you know, those folks are really cool. And that's, those, those some good triumphs every day. Thank you. So the question is the biggest challenges or triumphs? Both. Both. Triumphs Both. and struggles. Tr struggles, yeah. Um, so I, it's interesting because I, I only consider myself a sex educator in certain spaces. Um, I feel like I've facilitated and I've trained and I've worked with young people and um, I had to be a sex educator. So anyway, I'm going to say the thing. My biggest um, kind of challenge and struggles, and it's been a day, y'all, already, has been white people. Like white people who get the funding and who go into these communities um, and don't know the community, don't know the people or the kids, and you come in with this idea that you're going to come in and talk to um, black and brown kids about sex ed, knowing nothing, nothing about what it is that you're doing and how much trauma that you are causing or reinforce, like um, pulling on and being okay with that. And other white people who won't call um, these so-called sex educators out on their stuff. So what I love about what Walter said, um, excuse me, by Walt, Walter, Walt, 
Um, what I love about what you said is when you show up to these, uh, these conferences and it's all white and you're still having to um, validate yourself and not only validate yourself in these conference spaces, but you're having to validate, because um, you're bonding yourself in these conference spaces, but they are also, you're like, you're teaching sex ed to people who look like me. Why the fuck are you doing it? You know? And like, why are you getting funding? And so why don't you move out the way and let the people who should be doing this work do the work? Um, and the other part, the last thing I'll also say that's been really frustrating are these white-led organizations who, because they don't see stuff, they don't see it happening, they think it's not happening. And so they think they need to step in and go and fix stuff. No, sit the fuck back. We don't need you. We got this. And what we need you to do is get out of the way so that we can be successful and, and talk about um, how we empower Black young people um, in a way without you and how that they can show up and talk about what liberation means um, without you being there. So if you could get out of our way, throw some money, give up some of that, uh, that uh, money that you're hoarding and let us do the thing, I think we could be a lot successful. So anyways, so clearly y'all have seen the day that I have had today. Um, but it's, it's like white people in these organizations. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to jump in. I want to jump in. Tracy. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. I feel like everybody can just take their mutes off and let's just go in. <laughs> well, I, I just feel like uh, Jennifer has brought up such a big thing in terms of um, the way whiteness shows up in the power and dynamic. And so some of the work that I've done, I see my colleague is on um, with like university. So in North Carolina, we have 11 uh, historically black colleges, but um, and universities and one um, native historically American Indian Native American college. And so in the work, a lot of what I started out doing was specifically HIV prevention. And so I would have originally said, you know, my biggest triumph was creating a curriculum and doing all this work. But then I realized who was actually benefiting more so financially and also taking the narrative and twisting it. And then when he had an opportunity to work in the community, even with adults, that no one ever put the people in the community at the center. And so we're having conversations in the community about sex ed and they, so another triumph was the fact that folks were glad to see me or see us because we were black or, you know, we could connect with the community, but yet again, we had to keep interjecting on their behalf for white um, investigators, you know, the, the PIs on these projects and always having to push back, even when it came down to like ordering food, like, Come on, how you know you could get real stereotypical when you plan an event for Black folks with your food order, and it's not the same. <laughs> Tony, thing. I had someone order some damn hummus for some some Black kids in Metro Atlanta. Like, what the fuck? Is, what, why are we eating hummus with some celery? Like, what am I doing? And we talk about can we talk about the harm through food orders? Yeah, like, yes. What the fuck is continental breakfast? I don't want no fucking granola to be here for eight hours, girl. And you try. And you got continuing ed credits, and you ain't even giving the speakers a coin like that, girl. Where's right. the sandwich, girl? Stop. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, and so that was the the struggle, and so that's one of the struggles is like elevating. If you're gonna have staff that you value, who um, some of us who grew up in these communities that you're gonna value, actually listen to us and don't use us as pawns or exploit us to get into com communities and connect with folks. Like, get out of my office, Tanya, talking yeah. like that. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanna, real quick, I wanna honor 
what um dang one of y'all said it and it was just like yes this idea of like um of of you are part I, I i always call it i'm a member of my own constituency right, right. so when i'm talking about this work i'm not talking about it as somebody who's like oh i was hired to do this job because i happen to be doing this field and i stumbled into this opportunity no i'm doing this work because i used to be that okay. girl sitting in class wondering why don't i learn about these topics or where are the pieces that are missing and so now i'm going back to because this is my own like my life is at stake and so it's a whole different discussion and and the irony, that's the other thing I wanted to point out, this irony that like, um, there are folks in our community who do that. Like the, 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 the woman that you said, Tanya, the, the, the mama in your community and the auntie mm-hmm. in the church and the so-and-so, like folks are doing this work. And far too often, my experience has been that funders, predominantly white organizations, predominantly white funders, instead of investing in the folks who are doing that work, they're like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong. You just need to come over here and do it the way we do it. You need exactly. to our systems, you need to learn our ways of doing it. And to me, that's where the real harm becomes because you, you, you begin investing in whiteness, you begin investing in these systems and these structures, and then you no longer can relate to your community mm-hmm. because you're not speaking a language that people understand. You're not, you're not, um, you're not even familiar with the topics and the things that are going on in the community anymore because because you've bought into this higher piece. And so all of what you all are saying, come and on down. I know you got some. No, but I would even say like that funding piece is like, they're not using any racial justice lens to fund this work because you want to, one thing that COVID taught me hmm, mm. is that these funders can decide they don't need a grant report. They can decide that all of those hours my grant writer has to put into it, that it can be three questions. They can decide with a 20-minute phone call, they can hand me $50,000. They can loop back to me in the middle of the year and be like, we got some extra coin. You didn't ask for it. We about to send it. I got checks. I didn't even know where they came from, right? So it's possible. The, the whole piece of funding this work. So when I came into uh, sex education, I was under a program in Omaha called Omaha, Nebraska, where I'm from, called the Adolescent Health Project. And it was, it's heavily funded um, by a family foundation here. And it was, and so that was great. We knew we didn't have just a year to do the work. You know, this has been like a 10 year program that they have and every year they get supported. And so you know that you can get in communities, you can get in schools. And I walked kids through from their freshman year to their high school year. I was, I was, Tanning kids kind of when they was going off to college and I met them their freshman year, right? In these large, what, what baffled me is that I would go to these sexual health conferences and meet these folks from places like Philly, like DC, like LA, and you're going to get a grant for a year. And if you're not hitting these numbers, they're going to shut you down. And I'm like, so with a racial justice lens, you're not, you will be able to address the collective impact of the loss of comprehensive sex ed from the black community. You will look at how, like, how intersectional the education has to be because like the, the diversity of thought and experience of black folks is, is so sickening. You can't, you can't give folks, you know, everybody ain't going to sit there and watch the grassy high, beloved. And, <laughs> and, and, and then, and then, and then you historically, are not doing the work on the other end to support people like the Tracys and the Tanyas and the Waltz to be employed and be able to work at those agencies or run those agencies. Exactly. So, so it's it's a it's a it's a bunch of layers. I want to say say that my biggest triumph was meeting Lex James. I was, and I, I tell this story, and I'm I always cry when I tell this story, but I'm not going to do that today because I I got to get through this. Um, I was ready to quit. Mm. I need a job. 
I was a person with eight felonies on my record. I was a person who had spent a decade in prison. I had the degree and I would get, I would get the job and I would get an email in the middle of the night saying, hey, we, we just, we gotta let you go. It happened to me several times. And so when I got the job at Charles Drew, because someone knew me, um, the woman who had helped me with my light bill 10 years earlier was in charge of reproductive justice at Charles Drew and hired me, right? I got in there, I'm like, I just need a job, child. I literally hid in my office for weeks because I'm like, if they see me, they'll recognize they made the bad decision and they're gonna kick me out of here. Mm. Then I get into the work and it feels so white. It's, and I'm reject and I'm- Because it is. It, you, well, you, but I didn't, you know, but, but this is my bubble, right? So I'm viscerally rejecting it, but I'm like, this is the job. This is my opportunity for my liberation. I'm making more, like all these things. I'm like, Dominique, you gotta sit in it. But I was miserable. Mm-hmm. They had a conference the day before they had Lisa Schultz. Lisa, no, I love her down boots, but Lisa served some granola the day before. So the next day I was late because I was in the drive through at McDonald's getting me a McGriddle. <laughs> and 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 my supervisor texts me like, hey, you need to get here. This presenter, you're gonna like them. I'm like, child, girl, what? I fly down there and I walk in and all I see, I really just saw light. Because that's all Lex is, right? And I just remember thinking, ooh, something's something's different. Mm. And I spent that day learning from her and watching her challenge white people. And it was the first time I felt safe enough to challenge white people because these were people I worked with. It was the first time I recognized like black sexual liberation was a thing. I didn't know about Sister Song or Monica Ray. Not, so it, she really was my introduction. And, 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 and so I, I share that because if we're going to fund this work, if we're going to support this work long-term, we have to unabashedly trust, respect, invest in, and uplift black women um, who, are, who are in this work um, because it's theirs to have. Um, it would be, I, it's low key, it's low key disrespectful for, for some of these agencies to receive the type of funding that they receive when I know the Jennifers and the Tracys and the Tanyas who are, you should be funded to the point where you, I don't know what, I want to do so much and I'm funded to do so much, child, I don't know what I want to do tomorrow. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing this work from a, um, from a space of like, well, we can only get so much done. So I really want to thank Lex for giving me that that lifesaver and from an abolitionist perspective comprehensive sex education is an abolitionist tool um for folks who are on this call and they're like i'm not i'm not i don't care about sex education you can get all the degrees you can do all the things what what got what made me survive for the last 11 years were relationships people liked me i walked in the room i was able to connect to people I didn't learn those skills growing up in the system. I learned those things through sex education, right? These, like, there are, there are tenants that ComSex Ed will give folks that will prevent them from recidivism. And I also, therefore, I also believe, like, these whole systems of oppression, in, these funders may, be a, may not be a part of the carceral state, but they benefit from the same, from the same ripples of it. Yeah. And I, I believe conspiracy theory-ish, that if y'all are doing the work and y'all are funded to do the work at the capacity in which you deserve to be funded, we're going to hit critical mass. And I think they're afraid of that happening for our people. Mm-hmm. Facts, right? <laughs> um, there's so many pieces that, that were brought up, but I want to real quick uplift um, the specific Black femmes that were brought up and, and whose names were raised because there were some questions about, you know, who is Dom talking about? Who is Dominique referring to? So I just want to lift up uh, Lex Brown James, who, yes. uh, 
is a phenomenal educator and therapist um, out of St. Louis, well, currently in St. Louis. I want to uplift Marietta Gary Smith, who also chimed in from the uh, from <laughs> the the space to talk about. Let's see, you know, and and I see some of y'all are writing questions in the chat. I told y'all not to do that. Y'all better take it to the Q and A because it ain't gonna be lifted. Um, <laughs> The, talking about the biggest triumph being able to hold space for Black folk to talk about sex and that we have the right to pleasure, right? Like, yes. uh, because, because, and I also ag- want to acknowledge that many of the folks on the panel came through sex ed through the lens of public health, and that also makes a difference because we know that public health has has always had a race problem and it's always been rooted in trying to perpetuate anti-Blackness and prevent Black folks from being able to express themselves in sexually healthy ways. Um, and so... Um, being able to come from a different lens like human development or like sociology or like queer studies, something that recognizes pleasure and queerness as a norm, that that's a rarity and that's something that 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 should be valued when it when it emerges. Um, the biggest challenge though, reiterating what you were saying, Jen, moving white folks out of our spaces who may want to help but weren't asked by us to come and bring mm-hmm. said help. Right. Again, it's kind of reiterating this notion that we can't do it ourselves. Right. Or re- reiterating the idea that we don't deserve to be compensated properly for doing it ourselves. Um, I, there's so many uh, folks in this 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 piece. I want to I see Eb, I see Vanessa Kellen. I see so many people that I'm, I just want to lift all y'all up. I see you. Right. <laughs> but we're going to keep going. Um, Aaron, I want to offer you a chance to come in here. I know you you don't necessarily identify as a sex educator, but um, just thinking about your experience, like what you brought up about sex ed or even just even sexual health systems. Right. If there are any triumphs or struggles that you feel like you want to uh, raise that haven't been spoken about or even some of the pieces Don brought up about the nonprofit industrial complex as it relates to black trans women <laughs> um i mean i'm you know i'm really out of my jurisdiction here in a lot of ways y'all so i'm i'm really sitting and listening to what um so many of you are offering especially dom i think you know you really put the you hit the nail on the head with that one um but i i don't know if i could identify any triumphs i think over the past like few years my whole like relationship to sex has changed and grown um and i think it was erica hart who i actually first ashay let's lift erica up as well. first heard um talking about pleasure being like an active factor to teach in sexual education um and I've never considered pleasure in sex at all. I think I I thought I was engaging in things that brought me pleasure, but it was really just compulsion and, you know, not having a lot of information. So kind of having to, you know, narrow it down. Like I think I think that was good, right? That that felt good, you know, like the thing went in the hole. I think that's what's supposed to happen. It's good enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I could identify any triumphs, but I do think um piggybacking off of what you said dominique i do think our education system is a means to an end um and it's really important to understand that every piece of our education especially you know with young people is to produce a certain outcome in our young people and to create certain types of adults in our world so i think the biggest thing i would love to see within sexual education is that there is no standard on the human body. Um, And I think 
even that concept kind of obliterates how we enter this discussion and how people enter into this education period. Um, because as a 28 year old, I'm still lost, you know, um, about a lot of things that have to do with me and sexuality, because they're not teaching about black trans bodies, you know, they're not talking about anal health. And I think, you know, um, me and a few of my friends of mine constantly talk about how like, people are having anal sex, but they're not actually talking about anal sex. Like it's a regular sexual practice. It's always discussed as some type of fringe, you know, um, thing that shouldn't be actually looked at and shouldn't be taught. Yeah, but people are getting hurt and people are getting, you know, diseases and all types of preventable illnesses in their anus that they don't know anything about. And we have to try to talk to each other. We have to try to read, you know, catchy gay articles that might <laughs> might talk about anal sex and how we can take care of ourselves. So I don't know. I'm really, I really just want to see more about bodies and sexual health. And I want it to be just more body focused in general and not so genital focused. I think it gets lost in being so genital instead of full body. So mm -hmm. I don't think that answers the question, but that's- No, I think it's perfect, right? Because it gets us into the next question um, and for me around some of the biggest challenges, um, especially that black folks are facing in particular with regard to sexuality and sex education. And for me, I think um, what you're lifting up about, about the lack of just understanding and, and representation of Black trans bodies to me speaks speaks volumes because I feel like there's a dearth not only in the material that we learn, but in, in terms of who actually gets to teach, right? Because even when we look at Black sex educators, the vast majority of us are, are cis Black folks, which is fine in and of itself, but I think there's still so many gaps that we bring because we're not aware of, of other um, types of black, black experiences. And so I think um, to me, that's another challenge that, that, that has to be addressed, particularly when we look at um, the lack of awareness of the realities of sexual and gender diversity. Um, and so definitely to me, that it's a great way to transition into that topic. Um, so I'll pose that to the group. Uh, what do you feel like the biggest challenges are facing Black folks when it comes to sexuality or sex education? And also, and I think, Dom, you spoke to it a little bit, what opportunities do you think Black sex educators have in addressing them? I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, go ahead, Tom. No, you go ahead. No, go because I don't want you to lose it. Okay, I'm curious if you all feel like for Black people specifically that there needs to be a historical piece to sexual education for Black folks to kind of discuss the ways that Black folks across the diaspora have had an embodied sexuality and gender and all of those things. Yes. <laughs> well, it's funny that you should mention that. <laughs> because yes. I think... Right, so, and this goes back to the question, the original question that I asked you all, right, about does being Black affect the way you think about all these things? Because I'm, I've been very clear from being in this field as long as I have now that it absolutely does. And yeah. that was a big part of why I was so 
so much of what I was learning about being a good sex educator felt dissonant for me, right? So for example, learning like, oh, this is how kids should put on condoms and they do this step and then they do this step and then they do this step. And it's like, who's fucking like that? Right? Like who, how does that even work? Right? Um, Find that. Right. Like find the expiration date, find the bubble. Right. Like who's, do, who's yeah. actually doing all that work? Fill it around and make sure that da 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 da, right? Like, and some people are, right? Because you're le- you want to be safe. But, but even that idea, even to me, for me, and I, I want to um, hold up the kind of where I am in terms of my generation, right? So I identify as a zennial. And so I grew up in the era of like late 70s, 80s R&B, 90s R&B. And so I don't have the narrative that sex was bad at all, Mm-mm. right? Like, I, like, there was too much that I was hearing from Luther Vandross and, and Teddy Pendergrass and, you know, all these, that lets me know that sex was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so as a result, and it's like getting into this, this bubble of like, no, it is this and this, it's that. It's like, I deserve to have access to my cultural history that says, no, baby, there's nothing wrong with this. It, it, it's about context. It's about learning how to master your ceremony and learning how to master your, your, situ- your circumstance. And um, I think, and that's before we even get into the anti-Black history, right? <laughs> like the, right. the trauma that has come from being in these bodies. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. But I also think in this push of how the field of sex education is trying to grapple with racial justice right right now that a lot of folks are trying to put out these narratives right or trying to tell these stories of the history but it's not by the people who experience this like it's not by black people and so when you have white people telling the, the history or the story you don't know what you're talking about um and it comes off it comes off wrong right right so it just it's not done right and i think it's white people trying to either, um, you know, feel better about this, this moment right now. Um, and so I, I think what you're bringing up, Erin, is a really good point. Like, yes, that needs to be done. And there needs to be the right person who is writing and doing the history and telling these stories. And I, I think you bring up a point about, like, when the narrative is being, like, it's a, t- it's a, t- you, it's, I don't want to say stolen, but you've taken you've taken control over it. And when we talk about like, it's whitewashed, it's come through in a way that makes you feel calm enough to be able to put it out there and it's palatable, but it's, that's why I said it's not true because it doesn't have the full truth of it. And I also feel like sometimes people want to have this um, medal of valor or honor because I know this narrative or I know this story and I'm, I'm able to tell it and enlighten my peers, but you're still not giving validation to what the history actually is and another thing that you said Aaron around bodies and when I think about comp sex, comp sex ed and thinking about it being so focused on the genitals that to the point where we can't even talk about body esteem and we can't talk about body acceptance and the joy and the pleasure of just loving your body the way it is because we've only focused on the genitals. So when we start having conversations about like, I keep going back to that gap between the legs or, you know, I'm bootylicious. I've been that way. Even when I was a size four, I had to wear a size eight just to get the booty in because the waist was different. And so talking about like, how did I feel as a young person growing up 
because I had a larger bottom or a smaller top, like not having the esteem and the body appreciation because everything was so focused on genitals and um, a socialized idea of what a, a sexy body or a healthy body was to look at. And so we have to include the, that in our sex ed. Mm -hmm. Something else that's coming up for me in this moment that I never even thought about until this moment about the whitewashing of, of the telling of history is that even when we Black folks are allowed to tell the history, we never get to tell it to ourselves. We never get to tell it to our communities, right? Like I, mm -hmm. at this point, um, a lot of folks know my history and my experience with studying anti-Blackness and the history of anti-Blackness with regards to Black sex ed. But very rarely does someone invite me to come and talk to a community about what that looks like in their community. Like, I've never had that. People are like, oh, come talk to our white conference, which is all white. Um, come talk to our class. Come lecture for our class. And it's like, okay, but what are you going to do with this information? Often what happens is it's just this kind of, oh, well, that's, that's so sad. That's so, you know, and the question is often, well, what can I do? And it's like nothing, like, let give, move out the way, give us the space to have these conversations with ourselves. Um, like I think about uh, uh, Tanya, right? Like Tanya State in North Carolina, right? And the history, we, at this point, those who are, have been awake kind of know the history of mistreatment of black bodies in North Carolina. How often do those conversations get to happen in the community, right? How many generations of young North Carolinians don't know that this is what happened, right? How many young Baltimoreans don't know the story of Norplant and, and reproductive coercion that went on there in the 90s? How many, you know, young Tuskegeans don't know the story of the syphilis experiment because those stories don't get to get shared? And, and, I, and I feel like in every all in, in our various black metropolises like Walt brought up, there's all these stories that don't get spoken unless they get to be spoken to white people. And that too in itself is a washing of, a washing of sorts. Um, Walt and Dominique, anything y'all want to share about kind of challenges? Uh, yeah, biggest challenges facing sexuality or sex education for black folks. I love I love that Aaron brought up uh, the idea of history. I, I love that idea. I mean, you know, if I read a really good book, for example, you know, the first 50 pages is telling me about the main character's parents, right? Or, you know, that background that leads to what helps them make the kind of decisions that they make going forward. And I don't think you can have any comprehensive conversation about anything, certainly sex, sexuality, um, sex education, that doesn't involve the history of the people that you're talking about. And, you know, so I'll keep this short and say, everything that I've heard has been my experience nearly every day, right? And I'm the one, I want all the smoke. I, most people that know me, I'll go in, I'll go in the room fighting at from the gate, let's go. And, you know, so these white folks tired of me. Um, but I think in many cases, they, I don't give them a choice but to, to listen and have to deal with it. Um, and, you know, but that's tiring and, 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 you know, after a while they just get old, feel me? So I, I you know, I kind of deal with that, but I, I echo a lot of what's just been said. I, I don't even have to repeat it. It's that, that's my experience. I think one of the things we're going to have to do is recognize how anti-black, black folks are through our, like our lens of what's okay for us to do sexually. Um, there is, because like. Cause I'm always like, okay, let's, 
like from this abolitionist perspective, right? Folks are like, well, let's burn all the buildings out. I'm like, okay, girl, but where are we going to house them at? Because you don't want them on your block. <laughs> so I want the I want the prisons gone, but girl, I need to house them as well. Where the medication at needs, how I'm gonna feed them, right? So it has to go together. So we can remove all the whiteness from sexual health. It's you you still are gonna have a man who's judge if he wants to be pegged. You're still going to um have um we're still gonna have to unpack what we say about each other when we have too many partners based on what we think that even means, right? So we can dismantle white supremacy. But I would say, low-key, I would rather spend time, because white, pe white people going to do the shit that white people do. And I only have, oh, but so much strength. I do think that in my lifetime, I can, we can be dismantling the anti-blackness amongst us around our sexuality. Mm. I, do think that we could, I do think that we could get that back. I do think that we could make safe spaces for us where, you know, we we know that we could share amongst each other um and and i don't know why we why we keep running into that brick wall i love like when when like like folks like walk like when 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 cis black men are on like when black men are on these panels i love to hear it because oftentimes it's like the program is real men talk to men and i'm like okay girl what are you talking to each other about um <laughs> because you do fuck shit so therefore you you plant that seed in these churn um wanting to see like really because we all have to do it together we all have to this whole thing about liberation there is an individualized definition of liberation right and people think it's a problem when you are on your individualized mission of liberation i don't i don't see that as a problem the problem is that when your individual liberation is your is your glass ceiling so you yeah. should be in my belief you should be using your individual liberation, your individual access, your individual privilege. And once you get access, then how do you decenter yourself as much as possible? And how do you dole it out to your folks? And not in a spirit of, well, you ate. Don't let. Don't forget that I made sure you ate. Don't make sure I made sure you're okay. But in a here, love, live and get your life, and we gonna get our lives together. So from for something like in a sexual space, I don't. I believe if we had safer spaces to talk about comprehensive sex education and safer spaces just for folks to be sexual, you wouldn't see as many black trans women being murdered. You yeah. say that one more time. Say I again. believe if we had safe spaces that were, again, we ain't talking about Karen and them. We talking about, we talking about Keisha and them. If we had safe spaces around our sexual identities and liberations in black, with black folks, yes. the numbers of black trans women being murdered, I don't believe will be what they are. That's yeah. real. Cause that's real. You know I mean? Because when we're looking at the root, like that's it's so, yeah, it's so hard to look at the root cause analysis when people are being murdered in real time. But I believe I was talking to Mariah and some folks about it the other day. It was like these men are navigating desires, identity, and all these things and information that's been robbed of them. Yet they're experiencing and navigating other bodies. Then they hit this wall of, of judgment, esteem, and all these other things, and the and 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 they pull from this bag of these bag of answers, and 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 the way that they can validate their manhood is by murdering this other individual, right? I'm always like, yo, if we had a space where this person could process their attraction, when they could understand what it meant about their orientation and identity. If we had safe spaces that were black spaces, what would that look like? And I'm not saying this to be all end all. Please, no, nobody take this quote from this, cut it down, and put it on Instagram. I'm saying that I believe it could be mitigated by people feeling like they could be sexually free. And, and again, black folks could be sexually free yeah. together.
And you, you know what? I am going to quote it because this is often, this is my whole kind of the, the hill I would die on that part of the reason we can't get free is because white folks got their face all in it and they don't understand the history of, of anti-blackness that has made us self-censor, right? Like, mm-hmm. like so much of our self-censorship involved not proving to white people who they thought we were. Yes, come on, Tracy. Now continue to perpetuate these ideas. And it's like, no, I can't get free because you here. You stared at me. Like your white gaze is keeping me from being free. So I need you to move so I can be with my people and we can begin to do the work of figuring out what freedom looks like for us and offer each other that space. Um, I, I, I mean, I know this is a very simplistic way of looking at this, but I'm, I'm still of the mindset that uh, dealing with the homophobia and transphobia in our communities requires that we first deal with the erotophobia. We have to be able to deal with the ways yes. that we have been told that um, to be in our bodies and to be comfortable with them and to be moving about in ways that don't have to have definitions or that can have definitions that are non-traditional, that are non-white and not rooted in white supremacy are wrong, right? And, and you know, I think until we can really have that space to be able to pull that out, then we can't, op- you know, like, I can't offer you what I don't have. I can't offer you freedom that I don't have. I can't offer you pleasure and comfort that I don't have. Um, I just want to real quickly, we can keep the conversation going. I just want to real quickly, quickly um, honor that we now have a, an interpreter on. <laughs> it's taken us a little bit of time, but, but our interpreter is here. So if you see the screen where my name is at the at below and you need interpretation, go ahead and pin that. Uh, you can, uh, the, uh, the upper right, you can uh, pin the video so you only see that person. You're able to see the ASL interpretation from there. So thank you all for your patience. I do apologize about that, but we're going to go ahead and keep going. Um, any other folks want to jump in with other thoughts that are coming up from them? Yes, Erin. Yes, no. Um, I love everything that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just want to say that I think, you know, we're talking about gender too. We're talking like hugely, yes. hugely, hugely, how Black people have had to navigate gender, you know, in this nation. And I think before we even get to the sex of it all, we have to, we have to stop on the bodies of it all again. And what has gender meant to us and how has gender actually impacted our community? How has it taught us to look at ourselves? Because I would offer, you know, I think we often talk about the death of Black trans women um, in relation to sex. And I, I think that is a part of it, but I think so much of it has to do with Black trans people represent uh, liberation in the body that Black cis people have not yet touched or understand. So I, I feel like when somebody kills someone who is trans is not just because they, you know, they're afraid and that they don't want people to know. It's also like, how dare you embody a world that I have no access to whatsoever. Right. How um, dare you you flaunt your freedom in my face? Exactly. And I think I think what's so, so necessary for black people right now is for us again in black spaces, definitely. Um, but and I also want to say, you know. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't necessarily believe in just Black spaces because there's so much 
trauma with black trans people and black cis people that that's so much easier to discuss than it is to actually make happen because people literally want to kill us and i think we don't acknowledge that people look at us as deviants not just sexual deviants they look at us as you know deviants of god you know people have been their, their bodies and their genders have been all tied up in their religion as well. So we're looked at as some type of failing, you know, of God. And that's a completely different, that's not just gonna happen. We're not just gonna get rid of that, you know, with coffee table conversation, people wanting me dead. So, you know, it's not that I don't believe in all black space, but I think that's a little ambitious for what we actually need with Black people right now. And we need Black cis people interrogating their genders and as aware of gender and how gender has impacted them as trans people have had to be. You know, I, I try to not speak so much as a trans person because when I just speak about my experience, other Black women are like, that's my experience too, you know? And I don't actually have to separate myself from that. And I think if Black cis women, because Black cis women are extraordinarily violent to Black trans women as well. Um, and it doesn't necessarily look like fucking us and killing us, but oftentimes it looks like that same policing that I would, I would offer exists between cis black women as well. Um, that same policing on how we embody and if we embody womanhood in a way that is honorary, you know, to black womanhood in total. I think black cis women need to sit with why that is that way and why they navigate how they navigate it. Um, and black cis men are handicapped. And I, I hate that we don't acknowledge how handicapped black cis men, men in general, first of all, but black cis men specifically are so handicapped and they're standing you know, at the border of privilege and oppression in a way that I know it's confusing from my own experience, um, but even just watching, you know, black men trying to explain and understand what they're ha what's happening to them and what they're doing to other people through this manhood that has been placed on them. Um, I, I really want to see more spaces where black men, and I so appreciate the work that you do, you know, Walt, because you are actually working directly with black men, because I feel like black men need a space to actually also talk about their thigh gaps and their big booties <laughs> and, 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 what that, and what that has meant, you know, for them and their sexualities. And I think black men need to talk about how afraid they are of white supremacy, you know, how they're not actually inherent protectors, you know, mm -hmm. on this land where we've all been kidnapped and left to do what the fuck ever, you know. So I, I, I think there's so much going on there that's beyond sex. And, and I, hate, I don't hate, but I, I never want us to just stop because it's just another form of over-sexualizing trans bodies when we, when we just, you know, relegate to why we get killed to being sexual. It's not just that, you know, we've liberated ourselves. And what does liberation look like in the Black body outside of trans people? I have not seen it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just want to, I, I, I want to lift up what you also just said about, um, 
and maybe lift up, but also kind of offer a, a nuance to it, because I do think the sex ed classroom is the very space that we can explore all of these topics and all of these issues, because they represent, to me, the sex ed classroom is the lived ed, like it's, it's yeah. your life. Right. And so it shouldn't be that we're just talking about what's done with the genitals like you've you've already mentioned. It should be about how we are moving about expressing ourselves, how we're moving about negotiating relationships and and navigating um, the ways in which we're all growing and our bodies are becoming what they are and our our ideas about those are becoming what they are. And so all of this, like, yes, it shouldn't be sexualized. I do still think that it it can include sex and it, and it can be centered yeah, on sex. Absolutely. Um, and I this actually, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Aaron. Go no, ahead. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. That's why I was on mute. Cause I hate that. I hate interrupting people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I just don't want it to stop there. That's my thing. I, I totally agree. I hope that's, the, I, I don't, I wasn't trying to say that it shouldn't happen there. It just can't stop there. Cause I think people then, they still just connect us to the sexual act. And, and not our whole lived experience. Yes, yes. And I need to say that when that happens and we, and we push that narrative, not every Black trans kid grows up in LA and sees a multitude of Black trans people walking past them. I did. Or in New York. I've, I've, I've lived in Nebraska my entire life. And when I'm talking about like publicly expressing, using the term trans, it's been like the last decade here in Nebraska, right? Um, and so, when you're when you're figuring out who you are based on what you see on TV, what you read in a book, or or what people say around you, or or, or what's happening in the porn video, okay. it, it, your 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 idea of yourself becomes tainted. I also want to say that um, I tell folks all the time things that I recognize in prison benefit me every day. On the inside, there's a hierarchy, right? You can be a murderer, but you're not the scourge of the institution simply because of what your gender is and what your race can be or, 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 or your gang affiliation, right? But what can be sure and what can be true is that Black trans folks were the bottom, below people who, who cause harm for sex, against children, all these other things. It was the lower level. And, and what I feel like I see in community in the mix of like the sexual piece and all these other pieces that nobody wants to be the bottom of the total of, of I'm about to say some girls, some problem, like, no one wants to be the bottom of the list. No one wants to be no no one wants to be the most abused. And so there's a seekage of, well, who can I, even if they're like, well, I'm not actively harming them, but who can I watch be harmed so I don't feel as bad as about the way the world harms me, right? And if you're and, and if you're silent and you're watching this, you're just as culpable. And I think that's some of the conversations when we're talking about black trans women and and, and black cisgender women that gets mixed up. Um, there's been a lot of talk about like stuff that Hope said on, 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 the, on the grapevine and all those other things. It's more of we're culpable to each other. We owe each other these things because we're black folks, right? It just so happens that black trans people are in the most need of being owed to at this time. But I could say that we look forward to and greet the day when we are not the most oppressed amongst y'all. And I'm and I'm I'm telling you, I will love to go, donate to your GoFundMe if it's if it's not my people dying around me. But we haven't seen that paradigm flip. So I think the more that we can address the harm that happens to Black women and work with and and have conversations with Black women around how they perpetuate that harm to Black trans women, yeah. right? It's there. I will also say. Today is the first time that people have seen me publicly and my presentation matches what they've seen in my pronouns. And I felt the shade, the, up, not today, up until today. 
Today, I'm everybody's sis. Today, everybody is using she. Today, everybody is ma'am. All that. People that I talk to often. Within every community, we harm, we harm somebody in there because we try to find the least. So, so even with Black trans folks, we have to figure out how we dismantle the way the anti-Blackness and white supremacy shows up and how we love or, or not love each other and how we're harming each other and that, and that our presentation is valid. Like we talk about it, we say it in, 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 in rallies and we say it on social media, but we, we, we really aren't, I don't believe that we're creating those type of spaces in the way that we should. And then that challenges you because most of the ways that we interpret someone being affirming a female because we sexualize female bodies is makeup, hair, lipsticks, bodies, surgery, and all these things. And so we're all like, oh my God, I don't know why person, this person put all of this silicone in their body. Because you told them that's the only way you're going to see them as a woman. And you've told black women that if their bodies aren't like that, then they're not really women. And, it's, and it goes on and on and on. And then it goes to the historical piece that Aaron is talking about. So we can't address the current harm and mitigate future harm if we don't look at the historical trauma. And we have to figure out how we can be comfortable not being on top inside of a marginalized class.